I'm excited to kick off a brand new teaching series this morning on Revelation. So, in the next four weeks together, we're going to teach the enti- all of the themes of the book of Revelation, all 22 chapters, get every single theological concept taught, answer all of your questions about the return of Christ and the coming apocalypse. If we do your taxes in the meantime, we will be the greatest church in the history of humankind. <laughs> I want to preface right up front, this is a four-week series. So we'll only be able to cover so much. So what I need your help with, if you have any questions, just email us info at mercyroad.cc and we will do our best to answer them. Uh, This morning, I wanna kick off and lay the the foundation for the book of Revelation. We're looking at this as a part of our year in the word. Uh, We challenged you in January to read the Bible in its entirety on your own this year. And so if you like got to like Exodus or Leviticus or it made it to like halfway through Genesis and you stopped and quit, it's okay. This morning's message is for you. Part of following Jesus is sticking with it, turning towards him when we haven't followed through with the way we want to and saying, God, help me and to not give up. See, the letter to the revelation or the revelation that God gives John was a very real image, a very real vision of what was to come. But he uses things in their first century culture to speak to him, and he's going to write to churches to challenge them to not give up on their faith and to continue to live out uh, their faith of being a disciple of Jesus. And so that's what I want to lay the groundwork with this morning. Turn to Revelation chapter 1. As you're turning there, I want to tell you two things. First, I got to go to this cool event last night, and it was so amazing to see there was a woman in our church named Christina Huffines. Anybody know Christina? Yeah. Uh, She's out at Northwest a lot today, but she uh, came to Christ and got baptized uh, in the first couple years of our church. And she was a single mom who had learned extreme couponing to to get by because she could go to food pantries for food, but couldn't find other uh, essentials like shampoo and conditioner and soap and toothpaste and toiletries. And so she did extreme couponing, which turned into its own nonprofit called Dotted Line Divas. And now nine years later, that ministry is resourcing over 200 families every single month with all their hygienic needs here in our community. All because she took seriously that because she knew God, that could change her life and she could be used by God to change others' lives like her. And she didn't wait. She said the time was now. And because of that, last night I got to see like a hundred and some people come together, raise thousands of dollars. They're going to start a mobile pantry now and all this stuff. I love seeing what's done in Christina's life. And it's happening in lives, countless lives here in the church and other churches around us. So the ministry of God is very real. There is an urgency that we have with that. I'm reminded, I shared this story a couple of years ago, and my son Jet, at the, he's like going to turn seven in April, but I think he was probably four or five at the time. He got really excited about, uh, he wanted some money to buy Pokemon cards. And so he uh, collected a bunch of rocks and he went door to door in our neighborhood and sold rocks to people. <laughs> and like, at first people were like, you know, what in the world? No, get out of here, kid. And he didn't give up. He didn't just throw in the towel. He just kept doing it. And I think some people, I don't know if it was out of pity or if they really like rocks, but they started buying his rocks. And then he came to church and I shared it in a sermon and then some other people bought his rocks. Then Ryan Allworth bought like $500 worth of rocks. I don't know how many, you know, I guess Indy now pays well, but like he, he like, <laughs> he went home and he bought more Pokemon cards than I've ever seen. 
I don't think he got anything good, probably wasted the money. But I share that because like a four-year-old gets more excited about selling rocks door to door than some people do about the good news of Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you the, the foundation of revelation. By the way, it's not revelations. It's one vision, one revelation that God gives the disciple John, who also wrote the gospel of John, first, second, third John. He was a simple young man who had found Christ and in his later years on the island of Patmos is given a vision from God about the second coming of Christ. And he writes it down so that we could know and understand what's to come. Now, if you're like really excited for this because you like get really into it and you read all the left behind books and you're excited to say, tell me who the Antichrist is so we can prepare, prepare that that country's evil. Like, I want to tell you this isn't the series for that. Um, I do believe in the return, uh, the return of Christ. I do believe even in a timeline and that God's going to use things happening in our culture. I do, do believe that there are more signs than ever before in the last hundred years of the return of Christ. I believe all of those things. But I also don't believe it's a healthy thing spiritually to say we know this is the Antichrist or this is this country represents this in the Bible because people have been doing that for 2,000 years. And World War I, they thought that was it. World War II, they thought. So I just want to encourage you. I know we got things going on globally in our culture today that I think are very serious and very real. And I do believe that in our culture, there are signs of the end times. But the goal of the, the letter to the, the seven churches that we're going to read here, this revelation that was given to John, was not to prevent things, to prepare, but prepare their hearts so they may let God fully reign in their communities. It, the heart of this is being a disciple of Christ and living differently because the time is near and we need to live with urgency. That's what I want to share with you as we lay the foundation this morning. You ready to study God's word, church? Come on. So the disciple John writes this down. He has a, a literal, he's caught up to heaven and he has this vision from God and he gets to experience something that no other human beings get to experience. And he writes it down for us so that we could understand. In uh, chapter one, verse one, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. Servants is the word doulos in Greek. It also means slaves. You literally, it's to those who have made Christ their master. They've surrendered everything to his lordship. Show his servants what must take, soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written. Here's the key part. Because the time is near. The reason this is important, the reason we study the book of Revelation and it's 22 chapters, there weren't chapters originally, of course, is because it's important that we understand the time is near and we need to live like it is. That we may have eternal salvation but there is now a mission and an urgency that comes with it. I want to talk to you about to live like the time is near. Let's do that together. Let's pray. God, we just pause. I just want to thank you in a culture where we don't prioritize the things of you very often. Man, people packed out this room this morning. And again, we ran out of chairs. And I just want to say, God, that your Holy Spirit is here with us right now. Take my words away. Speak to us through scripture that what you have to share to us about what's going on in our lives and our world. Challenge each of us that are attending online right now, Lord, to live differently because of what you have to say to us. We surrender this time to you and pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's family said, amen. 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 Now, 
Many of you know, and so I'm not going to recount it all, but when I first became a Christian and I moved to Southern California from a small town in Indiana, I did it because I wanted to act. I know that may be hard to believe, but that's what was my dream. In fact, in college, I did a little bit of Shakespeare. I love to recite my lines when I was Banquo in Macbeth. I won't put you through it this morning. But what I want to tell you is, is that we all know when we watch a Shakespearean play that they're speaking in a language, in a genre that we may or may not understand. The tragedy and that sort of thing. We understand genres in literature. We understand genres in movie, movies. How many of you love scary movies? That's like your thing. You love that thing. We're going to pray for all you all because I don't know what's wrong with you. Uh, how many of you are like sci-fi? You could watch that all day. Any, any fantasy lovers? You love fantasy movies? Okay, James, just are you going to raise your hand for everything? you like, I love all movies, right? That's me right there. Uh, I, we all understand genres in movies and writings. And in the Bible, you get different genres, different ways of writing. We know that if we read the Psalms, it's poetic. If we read First and Second Chronicles, it's written as an editorial historically, where First and, King, First and Second Kings was just history. It wasn't an editorial. The, the revelation that God gives John is very real about the return of Christ and the end times. But it's written in a way that is known as apocalyptic literature. Like, what in the world does that mean? It's just a genre. It's a way in that culture, in that context that they would write with very vivid imagery to use that to describe a very real thing. So we're going to hear about dragons. Not because when we come to the end times, we think a dragon's going to be flying in the sky, right? We're going to talk about what these images represent, including sometimes numbers, which would be used to communicate perfection and other things uh, in the book of Revelation. But we need to understand just because it's imagery doesn't mean it's all metaphorical and not real. It's using imagery to describe very real things. Theologians would say it's describing a mountain in the distance that you can't see with a mountain in front of you that you can see to help you understand, to give you an idea of what the return of Christ is going to be like. The word revelation uh, comes from the Greek word apocalypse. Apocalypse means a revelation or unveiling. What God was doing with John is he was unveiling what heaven is like and what it's going to be like when Christ returns and then what the resurrection is going to be like. And then finally, when everything is said and done and over, what the new heaven and new earth is going to be like is we're the center of God's will with perfect relationship with God and other human beings. No more sin, no more shame, no more tears. The old order have passed away. All things are made new. Amen? And so as we study this together, the hope is that we would each understand God is revealing to us the importance to live for where we're going. And so that's what I want to describe to you. Here we go. The revelation, number one, is for those suffering in Christ. Verse 9 says this in John 1. I, John, your brother and companion, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos. Now, this is in probably in the 90s AD, towards the end of John's life, one of the last disciples alive of the original 12, and he's writing on the island of Patmos about suffering and patient endurance. Have you ever seen the island of Patmos? I want to show it to you here. Does that look like where you would like to suffer? So how is John suffering? It's like a beautiful Greek island that you can still see today. 
He, he's actually been exiled on account of his faith, and the Christians at the end of the first century had been greatly persecuted. And in 70 AD, Emperor Nero had destroyed the, the temple in Jerusalem, and, and people had been scattered because of it. By the second century, shortly after this revelation is given, Christians will be persecuted for their faith so strongly by the time of Emperor Marcus Aurelius, they will be burned at the stake, their ashes thrown into the local river to watch it dissipate, to mock the Christians to say, how could you resurrect their body now? They are enduring persecution that you and I don't know in American culture. However, we do understand suffering and other forms of persecution in our lives because of our faith. And I think too often we teach Christians that when you give your life to Christ and you were redeemed, now you live for him and it's gonna be way better and way easier. But that's not always the case. Sometimes we have to suffer on the account of Christ. Let me give you an example. So like when you, if you're a young person in the room and you gave your life to Christ and now you're trying to honor him with your dating life and you're trying to honor him with not inhaling and, and, and drinking and partaking in things that you used to do out on the weekends. And you're trying to live differently because you know Jesus. That didn't make your life easier, it made it harder. For some of you that are, it would be easier to walk away from your marriage. To say, no, God brought us together. This was a commitment for our entire lives. And we're going to submit to the Lord through this process and grow closer to him. And as we do that, grow closer to each other and believe that God can transform even our marriage. That's not easier, that's harder. The way of the Christian is to suffer on the account of Christ just like he suffered for us. Remember he says in Luke chapter nine, pick up your cross daily and follow him. And so what John is writing here is that you as Christians are suffering for the kingdom and living in patient endurance because of our faith in Christ. Verse 10, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll, what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, I wanna tell you, these are seven real cities that had seven real churches in that first, the end of the first century. And so this isn't just about a future revelation in the coming of Christ, it is, but it's also a letter of discipleship teaching the Christians in those cities to live for what's to come to not give up and throw in the towel because their faith has gotten hard to live out. And God is using John to challenge each of those Christian churches to live differently because they know him. Because the message at that time was not that the good news of Jesus was gonna cause you to live differently so that you could have eternal salvation. The good news at that time was Pax Romana, which meant Roman peace, that the Romans, with their authority and power, could bring peace. But the, the, the gospel is contrary to that. It says that the good news isn't that the Romans' authority will bring peace, but God's authority in your life will bring supernatural peace where you couldn't have it before. But in order to have peace, you have to understand that there's going to be suffering as a part of that. We've had people in our church this last couple of years who have had physical illnesses. We've had people in our church who have been persecuted in small ways because of their faith. We've had people in our church that have gone through something hard in your life or a broken relationship and you're struggling and you're suffering and you're wondering where is God in all of these things. I wanna tell you that if you suffer well, if you stick with it, if you don't throw in the towel and give up, God is going to use that suffering in your life. It's not easy, that's hard. I can tell you when we lost a child, it's the worst thing I've ever been through in my entire life, never wanna go through it again. 
But submitting to him during that process, not only were we used by God to minister to others, it brought healing to our lives. We don't get to choose our time on this planet, but we get to choose what we do with it. That includes suffering in ways that we do on purpose, like spending time praying and fasting like we're doing right now for 21 days. If some of you are like into it, it's like day six and you're ready to throw in the towel, don't give up. As we're going to talk about in a minute, to those who are victorious, God's going to use it. For some of you that haven't started it yet, you can still do it today. we got extra copies out at the guest center. As we're praying and fasting leading up to March for a million, as we pray that we'd reach a million people for Christ in the state of Indiana by the year 2050. We had 72 churches come together last year. We're hoping to have 300 this year. So be praying March 20th. It's coming. Register marchformillion.com. But as we prepare for all of that, we have to train spiritually for it. That's why we read God's word. That's why we spend time uh, praying daily. And we're challenging you to read the Bible in the year, not just so that you have more busy work, but so that you encounter God and grow into the person he created you to be. But those are harder, not easier. Let me give you an example you'll probably understand where suffering for Christ is a good thing. We all understand that suffering in athletics works to our benefit. When I was in high school, my junior year, we hadn't had a winning season in almost a decade at the small town I grew up in in Indiana. And uh, because it was a small town, I was able to play varsity basketball. <laughs> I don't know if you know, I'm not a tall man. And I, I wanna tell you that year, we, we, beat, we upset some teams, we made it to the sectional finals. Oh, the town showed up, it was awesome. We went into the sectional finals, it was tied with like 50 seconds left, we lost by five points was so angry, so upset. And we went back there and we were just so like for, the, for months, we would talk about it. And all year we would train and prepare that we wanted to get that team back and we were gonna train hard so that we were a bit more athletic and we were better basketball players so that we could be used together better to beat this other team. And we went, we played them the second game of the season and we beat them by five points. We know that feels good, doesn't it, in the sports world? You know, Paul compares our life to a race and that we should stick with it through trials. And, and I was reminded, somebody told me this is actually Matthew 5, where Jesus talks about uh, that we should live so that one day when we see him face to face, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. That no, no matter what you're faced with in this life, if you live for, on the, for Christ in that area, if you suffer for him, if you read his word, if you invest your life, if you pray and fast and you do it because you want to know God more, he's going to raise you into the person that he created you to be so that you could be used more by him. So John is writing to these seven churches and he's telling us, guys, Jesus is going to return and you got to start living like the time is near. And you got to start training and preparing and living for what matters rather than the frivolous things we waste all our times doing. It's a strong message that those who have endured and trained and pursued Christ, we know we're training because we know where we're going. We know where we're going in the end. My son was willing to go door to door, not because he loved trying to sell rocks, but because he wanted to earn money just to buy Pokemon cards, right? He knew what the goal was. Our goal as Christians is we're going to go to heaven one day and we only get this life to be used by God. There'll be no more tears or shame or pain. All the old order of things will pass away. So all we have on this life now is in the, the middle of this painful world to live differently and lead others to the knowledge and the saving faith of Jesus Christ. Point number two, those revelation is for those suffering, but it's also to those who are victorious. To those who are victorious. That in the suffering, you don't give up 
and you keep pursuing greater faith in Christ, no matter what your circumstances are around you, that he is enough in each of those. See, in Revelation 2 and 3, right after this, Paul is going to name each of those seven churches and write a message to each of them. Now, theologically, some over the last 200 years have said that is talking about seven different church ages, that different ages of church history, and we're in the time of Laodicea, the seventh church age. I don't believe that. Uh, you know, that concept known as dispensationalism didn't come around until the 1800s by a guy named John Darby. Now, that said, in all of these things that we're going to discuss, I believe this is really important. I've been in churches that talk about Revelation and seeing where the pastors will say that you have to believe all these specifics that we believe about the second coming of Christ, and if you don't, you need to find another church. And I, I just don't believe that's a healthy thing. I think that in this area, there's some areas that we don't know exactly how all of this is going to work out. We have to believe that Jesus is going to return. We have to believe that he is the only means of eternal salvation. And we have to believe that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and we're going to live with them eternally with perfect harmony with God and with other human beings. Those are the important facts. So as we get into the fun details in the coming weeks, please hear me as we lay the foundation at the heart of this is we need to live differently now and prepare regardless of the debates about secondary theological issues on the book of Revelation. So, but when we get into this, I believe that he's challenging each of those seven churches for a specific reason, because at the end of each section, he says something in very similar language. Look at uh, chapter two, verse seven. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious... So the one who's victorious is going to say that seven times once to each of these churches. To the one who's victorious, or the ESV says, to those who conquer. Or another translation says, to the one who overcomes. Because the enemy does not want you to continue to live your faith out. The enemy wants you to bicker with each other, blame each other for your problems, blame other people around the world, allow our differences to separate us, to cause strife and hurt and pain. The enemy wants to destroy what's happening spiritually in our lives. But to those who are victorious, to the one who overcomes, to the one that sticks with it and seeks out Christian community and prays and fasts and reads God's word and wants more of God in their life, it says, I will give you the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. You remember the, the, the tree in the Garden of Eden? It's going to use paradisical language to talk about the restoration in heaven one day when we are in paradise with one another that you'll be, have eternal life. It's not talking about a physical tree, but you will have eternal life because of the work of Christ in your life. Don't give up. The one who's victorious. Or, or verse 11 to the next church, whoever has ears, let them hear. What the Spirit says to the churches, the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Your physical body is going to fail. There will be a first death, unless you're like two people in all of biblical history. And so what we know as Christians, though, is we will not experience the second death, eternal death, separated from God in the presence of Satan because we are victorious in Christ, that he has redeemed us, he has forgiven us, he has changed us. And he says, you will not experience that second death. Or verse 17, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the church, to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. God will, just like he preserved the people in the wilderness for 40 years, I will give you hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. That you will live eternally, not by the reputation of your past, 
but because of the redemptive work of Jesus in your life. And he does that with each of the seven churches. He talks about to the one who's victorious, to the one who overcomes. Your name will be written in the Lamb's book of life. You will receive eternal salvation. You will be with God eternally in his presence. That you get to go to heaven when you die and experience rightness with God. It's awesome. And we sometimes miss that. And we read Revelation as a way to try and prevent and stop certain world events. Now, I believe that the end times is near. I believe that there are signs of that end times. I don't know if it will be in our lifetime or if it will be a thousand years from now. In fact, scripture teaches us that no one knows the day or the time except for the Father. Jesus didn't even know. So guy on the radio doesn't know, just so you know. And so as we prepare, though, to live differently because the time is near, we have to accept that the way we are victorious is not by willing and working harder, but because of Christ's work in us. We need more of him, not more of our willpower. When I was a young adult, I had particular uh, sin issues in my life that I was struggling with, and I would fall prey to it, and I'd do it again, and I'd be like, oh, man, I'm just a bad Christian. I need to work harder. And so I would try harder and try harder, and then I'd fail again. And I'd try harder and try harder and fail again. And I started realizing, I don't need more of my willpower. I need more of the power of God. The old could be gone. The new could come. 2 Timothy 1.7, God does not give us a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and self-discipline. If I was struggling with self-control, I needed more of the spirit of God in my life. So I started praying more. I started, when I felt the, 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 the idea to sin in ways, I would turn to God and say, I need you. And it was weird. As I got closer to God, I didn't desire some of that stuff in my life anymore. We think we had to will it, but what we actually needed was to change our identity to mean more of Christ to know that we're a son or a daughter of the living God. The way we be victorious is through the work of Christ. It's actually John who wrote in John 1.12, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, to change our identity being a child of God by believing and receiving the good news of Jesus Christ, that he was crucified for our sin, raised on the third day, overcoming death itself, so that we could live eternally with God and experience his spirit in our life now and be used by him to change the lives of people around us. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the way that we're victorious by continually going back and repenting, saying, God, I need more of you. Now, the question brings, because in American culture, we often think of goodness as, well, if I do more good things than bad things, then I'm a good person. And I've heard people literally say this to me. Well, you know, I'm not sure if I'm going to heaven or not, but I think I'm going to because I don't really know what's going to happen, but I try and do more good things than I did bad things. And I just want you to hear, I get that in American culture, but that, you won't find that anywhere in Scripture. The Bible says the only way that we are victorious is because we believed and received the work of Jesus Christ in our life. And it also says that the only way that we receive eternal salvation is not by working better or working harder. You could be the best person in the world. Gandhi was a great human being, did a lot of good things. I don't know whether he's going to he-, he went to heaven or not. I'm not God. But I do know this, that scriptures teach the only way any of us get to heaven is not by our good works, but because of the work of Jesus. John 14, 6, John wrote this about the words of Jesus. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that is a reality in our culture that's not well received. And so we have to admit there's a bit of suffering. We have to live differently on account of that. But I want to tell you today that the good news 
that, that you have to believe in Christ is for everyone if you choose to surrender and submit in humility to him as Lord. But it doesn't matter how many good works you do, you could never be in the presence of a perfect God, ever. Historically, that's always true. When people were in the presence of God, they would fall down dead. And so since there is no human being without sin, it doesn't matter our good works. All that matters is that we know Jesus and redeemed by him. So how we are victorious is continually submit to him as Lord and say, God, lead me. Can I tell you the most dangerous prayer to pray? It's to say, God, I submit to you not only as Lord, but I'll do whatever you want me to do in my life. You want me to go to another country and lead other people to you? I'll do it. You want me to go to Anderson and surrender everything, give up my cushy house here in Carmel, live for people in Anderson? I'm going to do it. I prayed this dangerous prayer. I was living in Southern California where I'd been for seven years working at this great church, met my wife Lisa there and was in coming Georgia outside of Atlanta at this conference, heard this message, went and prayed that night on my knees in this little dirty hotel room. And I said, God, I want to pray this dangerous prayer. You want me to do something else in my life? I'll go wherever you want me to go, do whatever you want me to do. I didn't want to pray it, but I prayed it. And I had the most real moment with God. He said, go move to Indiana, start a church, and three friends of yours from high school are going to help you start it. And everything that happened, everything that happened in that moment that God said, it actually all happened. One of the guys gave his life to Christ, got baptized. The other guy got baptized. The other guy came up with the name Mercy Road. I can come up with it. And all of that began with prayer. And I want to tell you, too few times in my life do I have the humility to pray prayers like that. But the message of Revelation is, the foundation for all of this is that we need to pray and live like that because the time is near. And as you do that, I'm telling you, he may call you to do crazy things. Because to the one who's victorious, to the one who doesn't give up, no matter the hardship or the stresses or the suffering or the persecution, the one that has the humility to turn the Lord and say, use me yet again. I know you used me in the past, but I'm not going to live in the past. Use me in this season of my life. Those are the people that when we get to heaven, there will be stories written about. And I want to challenge you today as followers of Jesus in a 21st century culture where complacency is the norm, that you could live differently because of it, to not base your faith on a human being, or don't base your faith on your good works, but to base your faith on Christ alone, by faith alone, salvation in Jesus alone. And what you need more of is to grow closer to him so that you can be victorious and to not give up and throw in the towel when things get hard in your life. I have seen too many people pray a prayer, receive Christ, be baptized, and six months later, they go right back to their old lifestyle. Because we never got in the habit of submitting to the Lord when he was telling us things we didn't want to hear. That's what living for Christ looks like today in our culture, I believe. We have to live differently because of it. Finally, number three, this revelation is to those who will be in heaven one day. I don't know about you, but I think I take for granted what it's going to be like one day. Because if I really believed that I was going to get to see God face to face, I mean, how sad is it that a four-year-old child will go door-to-door to sell rocks? I'm afraid to talk to somebody at the cash register about saving faith in Jesus Christ. I, I, I want to tell you that some of us, we need to change our whole entire perspective of the importance of what we're investing our lives in. I spend way too much time trying to train my children to be better athletes and academics and not near enough time growing them in the faith and love of Jesus Christ. 
praying and praying together and seeking out the things of the Lord. And I think if the time is near, if we believe that Jesus is going to return and that we're going to have this crazy story that we're going to get into in the coming weeks, we have to lay the foundation of the urgent expectation of living for Jesus in our life. That one day you're going to get to heaven and you're going to see God face to face. Here's the throne room of God that John gets to experience. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Again, apocalyptic literature. I don't think we're going to get to heaven and Jesus is all bedazzled. What's happening here is they're giving you an image that you can't even possibly comprehend and say, when you get in the presence of God, you are going to be in awe of what you see. Verse four, and around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads because the crowns represented those who have sacrificed on the account of the Lord. In the future, those who martyred and actually lived out their faith, there will be representation of that in heaven. Verse five, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbling and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. There's not seven gods here. Again, image, it's talking about seven. It was a number of perfection. It's talking about the perfect uh, image of God. And before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And it describes these creatures, these incredible, beautiful angels that are there worshiping God. Look down to verse eight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings and, and are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who was seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who's seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. That one day, we will be in the presence of God. You will see the throne room of God and all you will be able to do is to hit your knees in an act of worship because you don't deserve to be in his presence, but you are victorious because you surrendered your entire will to his lordship in your life. And so if you're sitting there and you're like, okay, I get this whole thing. Jesus is going to return, but, but what do I do now? Like, I, I, don't, I don't know if I'm going to go to heaven when I die. Like, I'm trying to be a good person. The Bible tells us you can know. It's very clear. John 1, 12, you believe and receive the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ by faith alone in Christ, by grace alone in Christ. That's the only means of salvation. No one comes to the Father except through him. Romans 10, 9, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It doesn't say unless you got a divorce or unless you had a bad habit or you said something you shouldn't have said one time. Or unless you had a, a past in the history, it says that if you confess Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Now there's change that comes with it. There's openness that comes with it. There's life transformation that comes with it. But the beginning, the important part of all of Revelation is the time is near. You need to prepare and you need to receive salvation to be transformed, to not give up on your faith, but eternally turn back to him and say, help me anew. I, I'm telling you, I, want to, I don't want to apologize, but I've gotten a little passionate this morning because I don't see the urgency in the American church that, that is needed. 
And the reason that we, there's these churches today that are all happening and there's a work happening in their state, the reason that we're praying for a million people to be uh, reached for Christ in our state because the same God that we worshiped in the Old Testament that made the sun stand still, that parted the Red Sea, is the same God that's gonna return one day and put the world right. And our only expectation until his return is to live as the time is near, to live with hope-filled expectation that God could use you to use you and we waste we waste so much of our lives on things we will not care about and i don't want to do that anymore and i don't want you to do that anymore and so we're just going to respond in prayer will you pray with me god i pray right now jesus as we look at those first four chapters that the urgent expectation you had for those first seven churches about your return we need to have that same urgent expectation and that one day we're going to get to see your throne room. We're going to get to see you face to face. And I want to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, like Jesus talked about to the man with the talents. God, I want to run this race with perseverance, as Paul wrote about. And so for those who are Christians in the room right now, that you've been getting stagnant in your faith, that you haven't been living with perseverance, that you've become cynical as a Christian, I want to challenge each of us to repent of that this morning. Do this with me. God, I repent that I have become so stagnated in my faith, concerned about things I won't be concerned about for eternity. I repent of that, Lord Jesus. Help me to live differently with an urgency in my life. And then for those who you wonder what will happen to you when you die, you can know with certainty that you have eternal salvation if you believe and receive the free gift of grace and salvation through Jesus Christ. If you confess with your lips, Jesus is Lord. So I invite you to pray this silently as I pray it out loud. God, I confess that I need you. I repent of anything in my life that's not of you. And I surrender everything in my life to your Lordship. Lord Jesus, use me for decades to come. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's family said, amen, amen.